0: Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Today we welcome Rosalie Goldberg to the show, who tells the fascinating story of how an art form shaped her entire life. Rosalie Goldberg is a renowned art historian, critic, and founding director and chief curator of Performa, a museum without walls, a nonprofit organization which, since its inception in 2005, has quickly become one of the most anticipated biannual contemporary art events in the country and abroad. Performa has reached an international audience of over 250,000 people and featured more than 700 artists at 216 venues throughout New York City. Rosalie Goldberg pioneered the study of performance art with her seminal book Performance Art from Futurism to the Present. First published in 1979, now in its third edition and translated to 13 languages. It serves as a key text for teaching performance art in universities throughout the world. So we met at the Performa 19 Biennale in a gallery space in Soho. Um, I don't know if you remember that.
1: I do. I remember well. I was Swedish concert host of that and was at Jeffrey Dyke's base on uh, Worcester Street.
0: That's right. I have to admit that I don't really know that much about performance art, but I was very intrigued by it and inspired by it. And then I bumped into you and then I learned that you are the mother of performance art.
1: Well, let's not use that word, but
0: yes. <laughs> I know. The, pi- the
1: pioneer I- of the history. I think I prefer the word pioneer.
0: Yeah. But pine- yes. Pioneer of I the know, history. I
1: know, I think... Uh, Marina Abramovic calls herself the grandmother. It's like, enough already. We
0: don't, need <laughs> <laughs> we don't need that. So I figured out you're the absolute best person to, to talk to uh, when it comes to performance art. You know, this podcast is, I think I mentioned this to you in one of the emails, that this is about the, mm-hmm. it's for the art outsiders, really, who wants to know more about art. So you have, you have written a, a number of books, and we're going to talk about that later. You have founded Performa, a museum without walls. So a couple of weeks ago, you celebrated your 15th anniversary by presenting the Performa Telethon, a worldwide eight-hour presentation of performances, digital shorts, and testimonials from more than 50 extraordinary artists who have worked with Performa since 2005. So I was thinking to myself, what went through your head when you were sitting there? Looking at this eight-hour presentation.
1: Um, I was quite in awe of what (laughs) all this beautiful work we produced, actually. In fact, I was surprised. I was concerned. You know, eight hours, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to have to watch it for eight hours. (laughs) I was behind it. But actually, it went very fast. Um, You know, we have extraordinary archives of 15 years of work um, of artists, uh, who have used the the situation of being invited to do a perform commission to go into such a, an experimental place with their work, both emerging and well known artists, mm-hmm. and in each case delivered such surprising magical productions that are all deeply meaningful. Uh, Uh, that everyone, every person you speak to who might have been around at the time has their favorite that they'll never forget. (laughs) And, um, you know, and it's, if anything, I I have to admit to being in kind of a state of wonder about how fabulous this material was and received uh, fantastic reports from people all around the world. But I think some of the ones that moved me the most were people who had been there early on and said, You know, would tell anecdotes about why a particular piece has never left them. Yeah, and uh, so I, I must say that fifteen years was. Was quite a a revelation again because sometimes you forget what these pieces look like. Or to see them brought together like that was very, very special. Yeah. Um, The other key to the telethon, and just jumping ahead a little bit, since we're all in the middle of this extreme shutdown. Yeah. Was uh, which talks about the way performer the organisation works. That we're such a creative, flexible. Entity. I mean, yeah. part of our job is to be so responsive to what's going on in the world and the culture that I was actually, again, in awe of my team for pulling off something that could be a, a positive that came out of this very, very negative place. Um, just again to remind you, and I'm sure you've lived in New York long enough to know how important the gala the, the fundraising gala is yeah. and of course it's part of the reality of what we must do here as nonprofits um, because of the way we are funded um, again Performa has always taken a completely uh, unorthodox approach to the traditional gala which we all know <laughs> what that routine is yes, yes. by making those events re- then, turning them into really important events not just kind of fun parties but I'm always so obsessed, you mentioned before, education, I'm always obsessed with getting across a particular moment in art history. Yeah. So to give you an example, we created a fantastic, uh, one of our early galas was based on the futurists, which we'll talk about a bit later, a very early group of artists in the early 1900s yeah. in uh, Paris and Italy and Europe. Um, and we we constructed this dinner that was based on a futurist cookbook, we rebuilt some of the future's noise machines. Yeah. We had people. Uh, the, the entire menu was, as I say, based on this cookbook. It had little manifesto texts in the middle of the food. Yeah, you know, it was, it was <laughs> fabulous. Uh, one of the things they talk about is, you know, the the air and the scents. You know, as you know, the smells yeah. of the world that we need to be. Uh, our, all our senses need to be you know, in a frenzy of awareness. And so we actually had this special moment where we put scent in the air. Mm-hmm. And this, again, was all to inform, you know, the 200 guests that were there and who are supporters what this movement was about. Yeah. So part of the Performer Gala has been, and we're going to talk a bit more about this extraordinary history of performance that I chose to write about and wrote this book in 1979. Yeah, to show there were these, to to really explain what what we're trying to do today. You know, where this history has has been so significant to the history of art. Yeah. And so, for example, the futurist banquet we did, we did a a Russian constructivist evening that we called the Red Party, of course. Yeah. And everything was red. The food was red. Uh, People had to wear red. Everybody had to come out wearing red clothes. Um, The the music, everything we did was from that moment in time, but the Red Party, and yeah. and so on. We did a beautiful, beautiful event for the Bauhaus, and we played on the Bauhaus and did uh, these fantastic parties that they were well-known from. They did something called the Metal Party. Uh-huh. So we made our version of the Metal Party. So each of our galas has been inventive to such a degree that people – Wait for them and sort yeah. of go what's what's next? That's and as I say, you know, and for me, it's like with every bite a bit of history, I'm not going to let you get away with just having fun. <laughs> you actually you actually need to learn something. Yeah. so in fact, the menu in, including what you're actually ingesting, but the menu that you're reading, is also part of that history. So you literally, my job was to make you leave that very special gala evening, which can be so dull, yeah. um, come away going, I had no idea that this is what artists were doing in 1923, you yeah. know, and, and this is why it was going on. So I use every opportunity to explain uh, the relevance of this material. Yeah. So jumping back, so of course with COVID, forget, you know, no more in-person in, in person um, galas and, you know, and most, and everyone's sort of doing a zoom gala or whatever, but our team decided to come up with a, a telethon, um, uh, you know, for some grew up on, um, who grew up on Jerry Lewis's telethons in this country, which is a huge fundraiser. <laughs> and so that was one example, which again, we had a very kind of very serious, but also very entertaining side. And then in our way, because we we're always so uh, obsessed with getting these various art historical ideas out mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. it was a chance to look at Namjoon Pike's work, who again, for the, the general public, Namjoon Pike was a very important artist uh, emerging in the 60s when video first became available as a porto pack. You could actually carry it in your hand and take a movie on the street and go and show it at a club that night. You yeah. know, that was the big switch. And Pike's uh, w- work and his ideas about using television, using the connective tissue of television, the way we can talk to people around the world simultaneously, yeah. um, which was turned into a work that he called Good Morning, Mr. Orwell. <laughs> of course, it was, it was on December 31st, 1983 to 84. Uh-huh. So, it was the New Year's Eve of 1984. Huh. And it was a fantastic um, a simultaneous broadcast around the world, um, specifically based in Paris and New York, um, of all kinds of artists. And again, artists that you would be very familiar with from that moment in time in 84, which would have been Laurie Anderson, uh, Miss Cunningham, um, uh, David Bowie, uh, you know, just a, a mix of artists that... Uh, from all different genres participating in this event hmm. okay so put these things together mm-hmm. we decided to let's take a little bit of jerry lewis <laughs> add a little add a lot of nam pipe because yeah. that was such an important moment and let's bring these things together and create the telephone yeah. and i have to say the response both in, internally with our small team we're only five people was so sort of invented a new broadcast channel uh, to present this on. It wasn't on Zoom. We have our own broadcast channel which we actually established almost two years ago and that's another longer conversation. So I'm just bringing up to date with the telethon. Um, So the telethon was both a highly inventive, creative response to COVID that actually takes us into entirely new territories. And to me that again explains a little about the way Performer works. We're very adventurous. We we're, we're here for artists to take on entirely new ideas that maybe you know in the in the current the last 25 30 years mm-hmm. of you know art art fairs and art biennials and mega exhibitions and in mega spaces and museums uh, that you often don't get that that um, that energy and excitement that brought me to New York when we were all living in Soho and yep. lofts were $200 a month. <laughs> and there was this sense of the artist community generating really new ideas. And yeah. that again is one of the roles of performer without being sentimental about the seventies yeah. was to say, we need this community again. We need an opportunity to make work. That's not about the marketplace. It's not about a huge museum exhibition, but that really takes us into new areas and again, that's where the telethon has brought us just two weeks ago because we're really rethinking what is this idea of being, since we're all online and probably will be for a much longer time, yeah. how, again, do we use the, com- the screen, whether it's your computer, your laptop, or your telephone, as a place for aesthetic and intellectual discovery?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's been what's driving us. So uh, many parts of the way we think, both in terms of art history um, the history of visual art, the history of visual artists making performance, yeah. and one of the early definitions I use, because it's a difficult world to describe in, in one sentence, is, is live art by artists, mm-hmm. which is, a, in a way, an easier way to describe it. Um, and And then also... You know, one of my favorite mottos, which has become sort of entrenched in performers' uh, mythology or not mythology in reality, is "is 100% risk, 100% trust." Uh, <laughs> we, we ask artists to go off on a limb and yeah. produce work that they've never done before, and we don't know what we're getting, and they don't know what they're giving us. But yeah. there's 100% trust that the artists that we'll just choose to work with that their imagination there all elements will come together and that was again to me the ultimate um success of the performer telethon and the response we're getting is 100 percent risk we had no idea what we're doing we were not a tv company we've never worked in television we've built a studio actually pace gallery was very very terrific and gave us their new seventh floor, which they're using for performance. Wow. We built our own perform, uh, studio. We ha- we worked with an art group that actually does uh, broadcast. And we took off in a completely unexpected, unheard of direction. So <laughs> it talks about, you know, invention, inventiveness, the, the nature of artists mm. that you know, give them a, a problem that they've never seen before and they'll dive in with great excitement and yeah. huge imagination.
0: So when you ha- when you experienced this then Rosalie, did you think about the next 15 years? Did you get any sort of uh, ideas? Because sometimes when you see this um, you, you could not avoid seeing this incredible amount of work that has been done and all these people yes. and, and you sort of you feel proud of, of what you've done but you also feel there's so much undone. And so, so what, what were you thinking about the next 15 years did you have well you know
1: i always think you're only as good as the next one as far as the biennial so i don't really look back and go oh wow that's great now you know um so yes you're always only as good as the next the next article the next book the next interview you've got to pull it off every time and you've got to do it really well and bring some new ideas to the conversation yeah um but yes, again, I, I would say that it's uh, there is always. I mean, again, the, the the telethon opened up this new this area of what is a broadcast, what is the art of broadcast. Yeah. Uh, since we're all look spending so much time, I, I mean, I'm somebody who's never watches television. You know, to the point that my husband begs me to sit with him now and then to <laughs> come and come and watch the series. You know, I'd much rather go and sit and go and read. But. Um, Yes, I'm watching the the screen, and how much you know we're we're seeing fantastic all kinds of things that we're looking at and and wonderful documentaries that have become so important. but are we actually discovering new? territory new creative territory online are we using that that extraordinary machine to Mm -hmm. uh, to really as I say pull off in a a very different direction so I wouldn't say it's for the next 15 years but it's certainly in the next couple of years I'm looking to really ask that question and see how we'll do that Mm. Um, I also have a few predictions about performance and the nature of what we're going to be looking at in the art world because you know museums Everything is is so pared down, and I think we're going to start seeing much more. Um, you know, there was a big time in the 70s and 80s and different moments when video or video art was so strong. Yeah. And I think we're going to see a return of new thinking about what is this metier, what is this mm-hmm. medium, mm-hmm. what is the platform of working in in camera, online, you know um really critical time to be thinking you know it, it, the, the rug's been pulled out of everybody under from everybody yeah. and again i would say that the museums and galleries have not been ready for it in the sense that i think digital was always and this is no single i think everybody was just using digital for more information for interviews for background mm-hmm. for behind the scene but it has not been used as this really creative medium, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that, some mm. big surprises about artists having to face this reality that you know yeah. you're not going to go and see you know it it, it just it shifts things in a very big way, Absolutely. so that's as far as I go with trying to predict
0: performance art how would you how would you define that because uh, when i look at this uh, and in my experience i've i've seen things that really touched me powder her face i don't know if you saw that opera no. With mm-hmm. a lot of naked men coming in to, and they were all singing, and and, and it was it was an incredible. Uh, I saw it at BAM, and this Pina Bouch. I've seen her, you know, water ballets and stuff like that. And then I'm thinking mm-hmm. about uh, you know, sleep no more at the Maccabich Hotel. I've been there a couple of times. So right. how yep. how do we s- sort out all these things? What is what, or is it just a mixture of everything?
1: Yes, I think there are, there are absolutely clear links between all of them. Mm. Uh, um, I know I don't know if you saw the Ivo van Hove production at um have you seen his work at all? No. Another theatre director, really extraordinary. He did network on Broadway, that was his recent Broadway. He also did the New West Side story, but it got closed very quickly by COVID. Um he did a, an extraordinary um work at the the armory, um a play on the Visconti film. And it's actually intriguing because just a little personal story there, I had mm-hmm. no idea. I met him at a reception and he said, oh, that's you and suddenly couldn't believe. He said, you know, I bought your book when I was 20 years old and it changed my entire idea about what theater was. I was very touched and uh, Uh in fact, he wrote this wonderful little sort of review for me for my new book. He said, I hope I'm sure somebody, 20 year old, he says, now I'm 60 years old and it's, it's, I've never forgotten it. And uh, he said, I'm sure some 20 year old is going to find your next book and be transformed. So that was a a touching comment from somebody who's really made their world in in theater. Yeah. um, And yet uh, recognizes the kind of adventurousness that thinking more like an artist Mm -hmm. has made possible. let's go back a bit uh, again for the general listener you know what is this thing called performance hmm. um, you know it's, it's, uh, it's the as I say the simplest uh, non-definition definition is live art by artists but if we look back um, you know in the 20th century let's say I think There's such a history of, already the 20th century was very much a multimedia history, you know, of art. That if you think of films that Leger was making in the 20s, you think of the books that Picasso and his cohorts were making and uh, the Surrealists and Apollinaire. There's always been huge crossover between poetry, language, music dance film at, at this avant-garde sort of on the edge of mm. discovery always and so not very rarely mainstream but then you know again go back to Isadora Duncan and how she turned people's heads around about dance in the early 1900s um, she went to Moscow she you know she she was followed very closely by again those watching how culture was being shaped um So there's a huge history of all these interrelationships between artists, musicians, Eric Satie doing the music for production in Paris in 1923 with uh, Picabia and again Duchamp. And these endless conversations about sound or language or the film, of course, I'm sure you know Dr. Calagari's Cabinet, a Mm -hmm. famous uh, expressionist film, where the set is painted and made by artists, there is such a rich history. Um, even before we get to the contemporary world mm-hmm. of artists working between disciplines, you know, um, it's it's really been so long since, it, it, as I said, early twentieth century, the, few Ru- the the Russian russian constructivists working in theater in dance in film the italian futurists insisting no art is you know we're going to create this new movement called futurist we're bringing a group together and we're having one architect one dancer one filmmaker one theater person one musician Hmm. one sculptor and on this i and and pulled together by the poet marinetti so again looking at from the earliest 20th century, there's been this decision um, in, in by groups of artists, because that was much more kind of a way to get together. It was happening in Paris or in, um, in Milan that said, we work in all media and that the beauty of being an artist is being able to pick and choose and take and work with artists from different disciplines. Yeah. Jump ahead to the 60s and 70s in New York that, again, you're living in the middle of it in Tribeca or a little bit below it, but... The whole essence of New York in the 70s, the, the lofts, the loft living, Judson Church, again, what was going on there was bringing artists from all disciplines together. Yeah. So you had dancers working with filmmakers, working with musicians, working with you know, poets, working with different, different people. And, you know, in some ways, each uh, moment in time that we think of as being this crescendo of excitement, you know, Russian constructivism, what was that made of? Again, artists, dancers, architects. Uh, fabric makers it's the the whole history that we could go through if I were teaching my class on 20th century (laughs) art and culture is about these times when people from a lot of different disciplines come together so this is a lot to take in because in a way you're asking so well explain to me how does theater fit into Russian constructivism Mm. well okay let's talk about that Um, how does where does film fit in okay let's talk about Eisen you know Eisenstein let's talk about so on. Where does Mussolski fit in in terms of music? Well, let's talk about it and so on. Mm-hmm. And we could go through each period of history mm-hmm. for different specialists. I mean, this is, you know, for somebody who's into music history or dance history, where the, there are these people are talking to each other in those inventive new worlds that then change the world. It takes a while, but, you know, Stravinsky changes the world. Yes, people famously got up in the middle of write a spring and stormed the stage and screamed and booed. But they love to do that in Paris with theater, you know. <laughs> but you know, and then he becomes part of the the canon, as they say, or Philip Glass and Steve Reich doing minimal so-called minimalist music, you yeah. know. The beginnings of that period was also they were downtown phenomena. They were working in this almost this protected world of, of the avant-garde. Yeah. And only much later, now if you go to to Juilliard as a music student, of course you, you learn about Phil Glass as the extraordinary figure or Steve Reich of, of the history of American music. But uh, in the 70s, when I first met them all, the, 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 the sort of the... The orthodoxy, the, those guarding the history, we're not looking at that work in the same way. So again, this time lag. Hmm. But so, okay. To sum up that point is to say that the twentieth century is 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 about artists working in many different disciplines, um, and it's a it's a big story to tell. And the museum today, more and more, is creating events that people will be slowly taken down these many different paths to understand that crossovers and that. Arts communities, whether it's in Paris in the 20s or Vienna in the 60s or, you know, wherever we're looking at, art communities form around a moment in time, a, a political, mm-hmm. social time. Not surprisingly, you know, they, they come together and there's this, this uh, confluence of thinking about the times in which we live. It's a complicated story to explain, but I I think I'm trying to show that artists... You know, if you're an artist, you, you're not separating yourself and saying, "I'm a painter and yeah. I work in my studio every night and I just think about painting." And you know, my head is only about painting. Or I'm a sculptor and I only look at sculpture. It's it's very rarely like that. And. Again, it makes it a little easier when people... I point out that Leonardo da Vinci also made live performance. That does not mean he's a performance artist. Please don't quote me as saying that. because (laughs) That that, that came up one that said, no, 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 I never said that. By the way, the term performance art is really something very specific to the Uh 70s. And it's it's a tough term to use now because I avoid it whenever I can. Uh Because again, it separates it from the art world. It, It doesn't show that these are artists... You know, Marina brownwich is a visual artist, of v- extraordinary visual artist. She understands space, she understands sculpture, she understands the dimensions. She she's she's a visual artist who also makes performance. But she can draw, she can paint, she can you mm-hmm. know she's she's a visual artist. Um, I think you know it's it's a. I'm always trying to wean people off using the word performance art because it's so specific mm-hmm. and it separates it from contemporary art the ongoing history.
0: So that's interesting. So you you, you make a distinction there, performance art or a performance artist is something more narrowly defined. Is that correct?
1: I would say so. I think in reality, most artists are making visual art and Mm -hmm. then they also make live performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, again, to me, that particular term really described a moment in the 70s side by side with conceptual art where, you know, uh, again, a very complex philosophical approach to describing art making and art thinking, uh, which needs also a long explanation, but, um, you know, there was body art, there was land art, and there was performance art, and uh, there were many of these different categories that people were using to try to explain this range of different kinds of things. Uh And it's a term that that works and yet it doesn't because, again, people, you know, people say, who's your favorite performance artist? And I I can't separate that. I feel, if I think of an artist like, again, he's always a wonderful example to refer back to and being historical, people feel safer if we talk about Oscar Schlemmer and Bauhaus and uh, who, you know, who really saw himself Split down the middle, he talks about a lot in his diaries uh, of being a painter and a dancer. Yeah. And if you go through in more careful detail about his teaching and the way he ran his studio at the Bauhaus and the, the thinking also at the Bauhaus. Again, let's remember the Bauhaus was about all disciplines all the time. Yeah. Uh, this idea that you, you could come and study architecture, but you could also study all these other disciplines.
2: And mm.
1: again, this community of, of people from many different disciplines. So back to Schlammer, though, you know, he's making performances that are so much about his thinking as a visual artist, about space, about darkness, about blackness versus light, light experimentation that was going on at the Bauhaus at that time with somebody like um, Feinstein and, um, you know, different artists working in Maholinaj working... In spatial uh, exa- exploration, with, with, as said, with, with uh, objects as well as with sound, with light. These are so. Is Oscar Schlemmer a performance artist? No, but he is an extraordinary artist who worked across media and yeah. created, created, uh, and was a you know a trained dancer, and he really knew what he was doing, and he was trying to think in all these realms, both two dimensionally. Physically, three-dimensionally, 4 dimension. Mm. add sound, add music, Mm. add light, invent totally new kinds of costumes, invent new movement. So it's it's very, very rich. So it's a a very rich story (laughs) to tell.
0: You said something in your book here that I wrote down that I thought was uh, very interesting in terms of um, what is performance art. You said an execution or demonstration of conceptual ideas, expression of an idea rather than an art object. Performance as a catalyst. And the performance is the artist and not a character, like an actor. And rarely do they follow a plot or a narrative. Uh, the performance can be esoteric, shamanistic, instructive, provocative, entertaining. I thought that was helpful. Oh, good. Yeah.
1: Great. Is that the big book you're looking at? I think Newburgh it's, it's your
0: it's your um, it's your first book, the we... one from '79. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I
1: you know. You know, it is very helpful. Again, it's a part of my trying to tell this this larger story and, uh, you know, not to settle on a single definition. But, you know, and that comes from many different things. I mean, in some ways, the the easier conversation often is, well, what's the difference between performance and theater? Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting question that I go into quite in detail in the in recent book, which is... Again, it's an easier one to describe in a way that, you know, one is dealing, starts with text, it begins with words, it begins with, uh, even when it at its most adventurous and um, experimental, which I would say you see more of in Europe than you do in the States for all kinds of reasons, you know, it, there's still a sense that there's a cohesion to an idea, whereas uh, performance, as it is with artists, with, with art making, it's, it's almost like to, to explain something too clearly is to be too literal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh, they, there's always room for the viewer to, to insert their own thinking into a piece. So the performance is, the, the artist working in performance is, is first and foremost working visually. It's a very different head headset, different yeah. frame uh, to somebody who begins with a text.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, some other easier ways to explain that difference. Uh, if you're a, Playwright, you're a playwright. You might not also be a director, uh, so you have this different roles in theater. You have the playwright, then you have to find a director who understands what you do. Then you need to find actors who will perform yeah. and read the text and learn learn your text. And from actors, uh, I imagine you need to find a producer and somebody to fund the larger picture and then you need to find a theater and then you need to find lighting designers and then you typically typically find um costume designers and set designers and so what we're talking about here is a a multi-division of labor if you're moving in theater art world it's the it's no it's not that at all it's a single artist who typically conceives the totality uh conceives the the idea Conceives the setting, conceives, you know, directs,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: maybe performs in it themselves, mm. um, designs whatever costume, designs, brings what, you know, maybe acquires, you know, as work gets more complex, maybe brings in other partners, but there's still, you know, there's still only one person driving the Porsche. Yeah. There's one driver. Yeah. And everybody else is with that person paying attention to that artist's vision yeah these are big big differences another i remember having a wonderful conversation with elm green and drag Set, michael and ingar and they said also how quickly you can move into doing a performance in the art world i.e all those steps i mentioned you don't need to go through those steps if you want to do something next week yeah and you have a really brilliant idea and you want to take over a certain space on whether it's on a street corner or wherever, and there's there's room for you to move pretty quickly and to execute something without permission from the you know all these different factors that are arrived. So in that sense it's it's a very um what were some of the other words you referred to? It is it is a catalyst. It can be all these different things. It can respond to. You know, an artist can choose to respond to a current uh, crisis or no. a current concern. It doesn't mean they have to and, and act, you know, find some way to execute that that's, that's very public. That doesn't mean going into a studio and creating a painting and, you no. know, but that, that has this interface with the public. So many reasons why somebody would choose to do a performance.
0: I like the, uh, the, this uh, sort of multidisciplinary collaboration. I mean, you, you look at other areas, for instance, in education, where you put in, you know, students and they learn different subject areas, you know, disciplines right. that are very separated. And there are others who tries to use cultural history as the base for some integrative learning. And you also see it in in medicine, where you have different specialists. Now you have a sick patient, but you only get a, an opi- opinion from different people, but they never seem to cross over borders. So when I I look at your background, you also have a very wide scope. How do you work as a curator for performance art, which would mean then that you need to know a lot about different things, right? You, it's not just one person who drives the car, as you said before. You yes, have to I, have, you have to be knowledgeable or at least, you know, have an opinion in, in, in other... Right, in right. a, so how does that and work I, for I you? I love <laughs> you say well, it,
1: it's a, it, both of his personal history as well as um, yes, I would say you're absolutely right. In fact, I often just think of myself a bit like, you know, the Chinese juggler that's keeping plates in the air and they've got to <laughs> keep running from one place. You know, they'll end up one side and oh, the other one's about to fall and you've got to keep running back and forth to keep all the plates in the air.
2: Yeah.
1: I would say, um, certainly when I wrote the book in 1979, I really did immerse myself um, at that point in time in the history of theater. You know, what do we know about up here? What do we know about early days of stage sets you know what is the history of the stage set what is the history of theater yeah uh, i certainly was you know following what is the history of dance where do we, how far back do we go where does the ballet dancer come and where does you know russon Where? what is the history of dance what is the history of film what is the history of music so you're right it does demand uh an awareness and a Obviously, one has to take pleasure in, in all these different factors mm. and trying to constantly, like the Chinese, the proverbial Chinese juggler, trying to constantly stay current with all those elements, including, of course, politics and society and what, what's happening. So it is trying to keep a lot of different threads together, which, you know, as a cultural historian, um, that's what we do. So, you know, so that that crossing disciplines i think a lot of that also came from um growing up in south africa which i think is a very important part of my my dna
2: mm-hmm.
1: um not only the 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 politics which was profound and uh disturbing and something that one was very aware of from a very very early age it's like watching some of these four year olds dealing with black lives matter or you know covid and seeing that they they understand it they know what's going on Um, and, you know, to, to grow up in apartheid was quite extraordinary, but, but to grow up in Africa and to hear Zulu songs in the morning on the Mm -hmm. radio and to see, um, Zulu culture, which was the area that I grew up was mostly Zulu and, um, you know, to, to not be separating one department from the next, to not see, you know, to always see everything related to everything else and related to the politics of the time, um, I think was part of my what, what I was fascinated by from a very early age. And then I was also a dancer myself, so that was perhaps my first complete obsession and everything from <laughs> ballet ballet to tap to even studied Bharat Natyam, which is classical Indian dance, because where I lived, there was a big uh, South, South Indian population that came out in the 1800s. So and then I was did a, did a fine arts. So my background was actually painting, uh, dance, and political science. Those mm-hmm. who, and so to me it was always mesh. That's interesting. All those
2: yeah, exactly.
1: So you know, um, so that was set up very early on from, in my mind that the, you couldn't separate those things. Hmm. And um, and then you know I, I did mention Oscar Schlemmer. So when I, I went to a place called the Courtauld Institute in London which is, you know, part of London University for History of Art. And so, you know, when I had to decide what to write my dissertation on, discovered Schlemmer's work and total identification with his agonizing between being a dancer and a painter. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I understand this. Mm -hmm. I understand it in my bones. Mm -hmm. You know, it was was so personal to me that he was talking about something that I was – Thinking about as a you know twenty year old um, that I could really deeply sort of climb into his thinking.
0: was there a time when you thought about becoming an artist in either in either painting, drawing, or or, or dance? I mean, were you, were you thinking about what discipline should I pick or were you thinking about
1: why can I, I pick a discipline? I think dance was something that the, the most, was the, the heaviest. But I also, you know, again, I can say this now because I don't paint anymore, but I was, I was very good at painting and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. I could do it, but I didn't see myself as moving in that. But I certainly had a... Um, a very strong sense of dance and that mm. as a possible move. Um, and in a sense, I spent the rest of my life writing about my <laughs> writing about it. You yeah. know, what is this relationship between dance, painting, uh, politics, the world around us. And yeah. so, um, you know, and, and I was always, again, political science, art history, the sort of intellectual world was calling very heavily, you know, um, and recognizing that it's a whole other courage or a whole other set of concerns to take off and try to be a, a you know, a dancer. I didn't know what that would really look like yeah. when I moved to yeah. London. So, yeah, I think those are things you're accumulating in your at your late teens, early twenties. You're recognizing that these very strong uh, things one's obsessed with, um, and then they all accumulate in some magical way. I'm always telling my students or my Children who are now grown, you know, it, you do, none of it's wasted. You bring it all together and somehow it comes together to shape who you are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, I, you know, sometimes there's that question how come I wrote that book? And I think it is about these just these factors that come together that, um, you know, why is it that I wrote that book in 1979 and how come that book is still in print 40 years later? Um, and, you know, and yet I, I still have so much more to say about it. <laughs> I became director very at a very early age of the gallery at the Royal College of Art in London. And uh, to my surprise, I couldn't believe I got the job because I'd never run a gallery before and I'd never curated before. But right from the start, again, because of probably this dance background, and again, not just being a dancer, because in fact, you know, very... Six early sixties thing to do, but in South Africa you know i was in I was on stage doing pantomimes and yeah. things. so that theatricality was always inside me. It wasn't just that I was a dancer, but it was like the sense of theatricality and you know one of my best childhood friends was this, in the circus you know th- this is what excited me about being in this animated state so and as a director of the gallery at the Royal College, right from the beginning, I think my first Exhibition there was actually Giulio Paolini, who just had a beautiful exhibition at the Marion Goodman Gallery, uh, very conceptual work. But at the same time, I was showing Brian Eno in music and the Kipper Kids, who were this completely crazy, amazing duet who uh, did performance. And throughout my tenure at the gallery, there was always performance going on. So the Schlemmer provided this, uh, in a way, a, a real history guide to what I was looking at so it was always very very important but then throughout ever since you know ever since it's always been again all those elements Mm -hmm. Um, so you know and then when I moved to New York I was really following all the new dance downtown and
0: and I understand that you, you, you founded Performa to recreate some of the energy that you have then experienced over, uh, over your life, so to speak. Uh, so where do you find that energy today in performance art? Where, where can you, I mean New York obviously is one hub, but internationally, where, where are things happening? Where, where are things uh, interesting and uh, innovative?
1: You know, I would say, again, that the, the history or what's going on out there is there's a lot of performance going on. I wouldn't say there's any one place that's more than others, although maybe New mm-hmm. York is probably very vi- vibrant, but so is London and so is Paris. Um, yeah. Performance is generally understood to be such a, a, a possible, uh, you know, such a, a vehicle for explaining so many ideas. I mean, I think if you look at the larger recent book that I wrote on performance in the 21st century, yeah, um, I mean, you'll see work there from Afghanistan and from South Africa and from uh, really all over the world. And I would say uh, it does. And I think performer was very instrumental in suddenly people really starting to pay attention. I mean, yeah. One of the other reasons I started performer was, you know, here i have been writing, I wrote that book so long ago and, Always banging the drum and saying, you know, you people don't know the history, and it is time that that history. So, I would say there were three key reasons. One was to grab hold of that history and say, "This is nonsense." It's time it was understood, and I need a platform to show that history. Yeah. So, one thing that drives performance is really I, that's why I call it the museum without walls is that we're showing this ephemeral material. But I want to go back and show you what they were doing in the Renaissance. I want to show mm-hmm. you. What you know? What people were doing in London in the in twenties or eighteen hundreds of events and how those fit into the history of art as we know it. Um, but the book, my book that I wrote in nineteen seventy nine, which establishes this twentieth century history, yeah. was in a sense a, a rewrite of the twentieth century. I wanted to go back into the twentieth century and open up all those spaces where performance had not been explained. Yeah. You know, what were the surrealists doing? What what, what did that mean? Yeah. We all, or we all know that Dada came out of Zurich and it was happening during First World War and the horrors of First World War and a lot of artists – went to Zurich because it was neutral and they were trying to get away from the war. We know those but nobody quite know what but, but where do we put this work that they were doing? They mm-hmm. had a nightclub they were doing weird poetry. What's going on here, you know? And then they all go some of them go back to Berlin and then Berlin has this Berlin data. and then they go back to Paris and create surrealism like what's going on here. So I feel I was explaining those parts where it was just glossed over because no one could figure out well what what is Dada and who is a Dada artist and so what? So these guys were in a and ladies were in a club in, in Zurich, but what did that mean? And mm-hmm. yet it totally shifted what we understand about twentieth century art. And yeah. you know, similarly with Russian constructivists, you go, what was going on here? What were these what were the events on the street? What was new dynamic kind of graphic that they were using? What what why haven't we had this explained? And so, in many ways, it, it's a revisionist art history of the twentieth century. It's like, mm. hold on, you know, if you read in detail again, I'm t- going through very art historical detail, but you know, if you want to understand Jackson Pollock and then to Alan Kaprow and the Happening, th- these two things merge and come together, and you know, you need to explain what happened with the Happening and how that changed. Turned around the whole New York scene, you yeah. know, the, the New York scene in the 60s and 70s becomes this place where artists are gathering um, at the Cedar Bar and doing events. And then they move, the next generation moves to the Johnson Church and the history of New York uh, yeah. becoming the avant-garde center is around these kinds of events.
0: Yeah, no, I, I noticed that when I read your book that, that uh, Rauschenberg and Jasper Jones, Yves Klein, Oliver, all those people were involved in this, and I had I never made that connection <laughs> before. You know, exactly. you only see their yeah. art, um, right? But you don't understand right. the context of how. And that this was
1: a, a nice revelation to find, and that's why I started this organization because it's like I've been trying to point this out for so long. Um, There was actually a moment a couple of years ago, I was at the Tate Modern and there was a beautiful um, Malevich exhibition. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to argue when, you know, people talk about the first abstract painting, the the, the first all white or all black painting. And it's always typically presented as 1917. And I want to go, hold on, hold on. He did his first abstract painting as the set of a piece that he did in 1913. You Mm -hmm. know, you're missing. But because it was a performance. Ah. It wasn't given its place in art history. Mm-hmm. So the point being that that set then influenced his future in abstraction, you know, yeah. and that very, very important figure as an abstract painter. And I was finally vindicated, actually, in the tape show. Um, <laughs> there was an entire room, a large room uh-huh. that said 1913 victory over the sun. And it had a beautiful quote from Malevich that somebody put on the wall a wall label saying if you want to understand my work you must understand victory over the sun which was a performance that he did with you know with these with again a group of artists who were musicians poets and so on yeah but that piece because it was performance was not understood and this quote had me like almost like thank you yeah. <laughs> you know this is what i've been trying to point out for years that that performance Shifts or changes, or it's a place to experiment yeah. that allows the artist to come up with things they had no idea they were heading towards. Yeah. And one other example, I mean, a recent exhibition, a beautiful exhibition of Rauschenberg at at MoMA, and it was also it was stunning to see how the work comes to life and enters an entire new territory with these installations, with the work that he did with Trisha Brown, the, the choreographer. And each time there's a collaboration with most Cunningham or with Tricia, um, it transforms the next body of work. Yeah. And I, I loved it, actually. I think there was a Peter Sheldahl review in the New Yorker of that show, and he said, Who knew? Mm-hmm. You know, Rauschenberg was a performance artist, you know, yeah. and it was almost like, again, you know, for arti- for beautiful writers like Sheldahl, he doesn't typically pay attention to that either and yeah. he came out with the same response to Picabia he said had no idea that this is Picabia was making these live performances yeah. my point as as a very strict art historian is <laughs> we're all we're detectives that's yeah. our job I'm always telling my students you know as one of our jobs the many but one is to be a detective to find where who's influencing whom and
0: we talked about Performa. You uh, started in 2005 and you said you're five people working there.
1: We're a very strong production house. I mean, we've we've learned so much in the 15 years, you know, uh, serious educational environment. Yeah. Uh, we've trained a lot of the new young curators that are now in demand Who, because every museum now has a performance department. And so does every gallery, by the way. I'm sure you've noticed this year that every gallery now has performance and several of our, uh, you know, our. People who are trained by us, you know, for five years have moved on to the Whitney or to run Pace Gallery and uh, these departments. So, um, yes, we need a little more, we we need to, you know, there's many aspects and and also a lot that goes into producing that biennial because it's not just an accumulation of, um, you know, let's go around the world and pick and choose. Everything is new and commissioned, so it's really working with the artists to create something they'd never thought they would even go near.
0: How does that process work? Do you, uh, do you invite people and then you, you take care of the production of, of, uh, of the art, correct?
1: In 1999, I was at Venice Biennial and I saw, and I knew her work very well, but I saw the work, uh, uh, an installation of Shirin Neshat. Uh, it was extraordinary work. This piece called Turbulent, which is uh, unforgettable, uh, It was in a very large piece at the at the back there. You know that large space where the, all the old warehouses. Um, and it was a remarkable work where there are two screens. There's a man singing on one screen, and then it stops, and there's a woman sitting sc- singing on the other screen, and you're surrounded by sound. And there's this visual storytelling about. You know, East and West and religion and men and women and huge, very, very profound work and very moving and stunning and beautiful and with extraordinary music. And I was moved to tears. I just thought it was amazing. Mm. And, you know, somebody who's been going to performances for 40 years, um, seen them in all different shapes and sizes and, you know, spending a lot of time in the East Village as it was in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you're always seeing work that's almost fantastic, and yet somehow it still has this very do-it-yourself quality because it's not a field that's been supported or it doesn't have a longer life or it doesn't have a way to reach a larger public. And, you know, I was coming out of that time period where also there was a lot of monologues. That was the big fashionable thing, mm-hmm. you know, the monologue. And honestly, I was just thinking, you know, maybe I've seen too much. You know, maybe maybe it's time to – maybe. You know, maybe I've just seen too much performance. It's not moving me. I'm just seeing a lot of things being repeated. I'm not seeing something for the 21st century. I'm not seeing work that looks as beautiful as Shirin nashat or Isaac Julian. Or, you know, th- that was also the same time that many artists were starting to work in film projection. Uh-huh. It was a lot to do with technology and wh- where film was going and bringing the... the projection film beautiful film into the gallery space you know many of these different histories we're trying to track as we talk and i sat there and i thought what wouldn't it be amazing if performance looked like this like i'm going to the east village and seeing these very rough and ready pieces that have the germ of beautiful ideas but they 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 don't they can't grow up because there's no one to shepherd it to Mm -hmm. the next phase i see and this was the genesis of performer because i came back to new york and i I knew Shirin not very well, but I knew her, and I, I said, you know, I'd love to come over for coffee, and we, we got together, and I said, I have an idea. Would you ever think of doing a live performance? I think you have all these incredible ingredients. You have this visual storytelling, this cinematic choreography. You have the stories are so profound. Mm. It's so moving. There's this beautiful singing—you know—it's got all the the things I would love to see in a live performance. But I'm not seeing. I'm seeing it in your work. But I wish it were live. Yeah. And Shirin, in her lovely way, said, "What a great idea! I would love to do that." And that was the beginning. And so uh, suddenly, I became a producer. I had no idea if you paid somebody twenty thousand, or if it was going to be two hundred thousand. I had no idea never produced anything. And so it went very quickly from there. We took it to Mass Smoker and I, I met, you know, certain people who put up some initial funding and we moved very quickly. And suddenly we had this work called uh, Logic of the Birds that included, it was just my dream, what I'd fantasized, these three films that were made with these performers walking off the screen into the space with sound. Hmm. And uh, just to jump ahead quickly, it went to Lincoln Center Festival. Wow. And, you know, and it was staggering. And then we, we also – so that was the beginning, and that was 2001. We also opened three weeks after 9-11. I can never forget that, mm. which was fascinating because, of course, it's a Persian story. It's all about – the same sort of similar large area where the, this horror was emanating from. And yet here's this ancient poet, 12th century poetry, that was the basis of this work. It just it was so poignant that it happened at that moment. And, um, and it was such a success, uh, it, deeply, not just a success, but like it was... It res- it, it provided all that desire that I had for a performance that I'd never seen before that, that somehow came out of the art world that wasn't theater, that didn't have a text. Mm -hmm. You know, it had all these elements of being the work of a visual artist, no question. Hmm. And, um, and so we went from there and actually, I remember Isaac Julian came to see an early version of that when we were rehearsing it. And I said, Isaac, you're next. I want to work with you. And then we did a beautiful, we did a beautiful piece of his that we presented at Saddlers Wells in London and at Brookton Academy here. Commissions, you know, are really, you know, I had a huge, my own roster of people that I imagined could make something beautiful by instinct. Like, what if, as I said to Shirin, what if you did a live performance? What if your performers walked off the screen into a space? What would happen? I uh, said the same what if to Isaac. Uh, and that's how it went, you know, and we, it's not like, I wasn't, I'm, I am I mean, I see work all around the world, but it wasn't picking and choosing. We're not presenters. We really are commissioned. And I think that's also, created the excitement about performer that these works are started you know from from zero from a seed that is planted and then they grow over two years into something that is unforgettable
2: yeah.
1: the same could be said from Rashid johnson was a similar kind of evolution of waiting many years to say whenever you're ready just let me know and hmm. he came came up with a brilliant idea that he then said actually led him into directing his first film because he had so much pleasure from creating this work with us that was him directing a play of amira baraka's dutchman but he chose to present it in the the turkish bars on 10th street and that's another story but it was brilliant um and he said he was so so taken by that new discovery for him that Mm -hmm. he it led him into filmmaking.
0: So what is up for
1: 2021? I think a lot of it will be very New York based. Yeah. We've always worked as you, as what brought you in was what I call pavilions without walls. So last year was a Swedish pavilion and a Taiwanese pavilion.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, we did a beautiful series of works with a South African pavilion. We've done a Polish pavilion being able to go there and really ask questions about what was happening. Um, I had a whole other idea before COVID struck, but um, so it's going to be very New York based. Um, everything will have be twofold. We'll have both a, a online component and a live component, s- and we will decide next late summer which yeah. where we're going based on where what, what's the health of the country, yeah. uh, of the world.
0: What is the um, typical timing? Is it uh, October, November?
1: we've actually moved it forward it's always been november three weeks in november but we've moved it forward for next year in case uh, we will still be outdoors so we want to make sure that we have enough warm weather to get people through
0: so something here that you wrote in your in your book that i that really uh, caught my attention that performance art continues to be highly reflexive volatile form one that artists use to articulate and respond to change. It continues to defy definition and remains as unpredictable and provocative as it ever was. I like that.
1: Thank you. Yes, I do too.
0: Well, Rosalie, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, congratulations to the first 15 years.
1: Thank you so much. It's been really great, very interesting talking to you.
0: Thank you so much. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com. Or liking us on our Facebook page, ARC Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright
2: 2020.